Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us, uh, Steve Cooperschmidt. Steve, thank you for joining. Thanks for having me. So Steve, my question to you is how does somebody like yourself end up being one of the most well-connected, most well-known privacy attorneys out on Long Island and end up uh, chairing the cybersecurity and data privacy group at Ruskin Moscow? Well, I... The, the answer to that would take longer than uh, than the podcast, <laughs> but uh, you know the short the short answer is uh, twofold. I would say, and I, and I always say this to you, and 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 uh, it's I hope it's intentionally embarrassing uh, in a good way. Uh, it's because of you, largely, uh, uh, many many years ago, uh, really being the first person to focus me in on the whole field of cybersecurity. I mean, it's really uh, no joke. Um, it was an emerging field in insurance. It was an emerging field everywhere else, but insurance companies were really focused on it. Uh, you brought that to my attention. Um, I was and still am a corporate M&A and securities lawyer and had not yet really begun to focus on cyber. Um, and I co-chair the uh, corporate and securities group here at our firm uh, and uh, uh, we had a cyber practice. It was comprised of uh, uh, two or three lawyers. And one of those lawyers uh, who ran the group went in-house for a client, leaving uh, a management position open. And, and I had an interest in it. It was, it was very related uh, to the M&A world, which is ironically what we're going to talk about a little bit today. Um, and uh, and uh, I talked to my partners about it. And they liked some of the ideas I had for growing the practice. And now we're 10 or 12 lawyers uh, in the group, uh, regulatory lawyers, data breach response lawyers, litigators, um, corporate M&A lawyers, healthcare lawyers, uh, really uh, an interdisciplinary group because as you know, uh, cybersecurity really touches so many fields. Our commercial uh, lending people are involved, so uh, that—that's the short version. Sure, and, and you know, I, kn- I know you very much preach what you're saying to to your students over at Hofstra. I believe you. you know, what is the, the course? It's Cyber Fundamentals. Um, the title of the course is the Fundamentals of the Law of Cybersecurity, and. Uh, yeah, I'm really proud of it. I, I developed the course. I was asked uh, by Dean Prudente if I would um, teach a course there. And uh, there, there had not been a, a cybersecurity course uh, before and they really a growth area for the law school because it's a growth area for practices. And uh, we developed the syllabus. Uh, the first year we actually had a textbook but it went out of print. So we actually developed our own materials for the course and uh, like almost everything uh, in our group, I I have to give a lot of credit to my colleague, Nicole Osborne, 
who really is a, a hostile law review graduate and is a, a valued member of our group and, and helped me put the syllabus and the materials together and actually, like you, ended up uh, co-teaching some of the modules uh, over the years. Um, and uh, and uh, that's been an incredibly rewarding experience, uh, you know, getting to meet the students. There's a high level of, it's one, it's one of the classes where it's an elective so people who are in it generally are really motivated and really interested in the space and probably have a background in cyber maybe a tech background and they're going to become lawyers so it's it's been a lot of fun sure no thanks steve appreciate everything that you're doing for um uh, hofstra i mean it's certainly i think uh uh we need more folks in leadership positions doing what you're doing um out there so thank you thank you um let, let's transition though we said we were going to talk about MA. Um, so, so given your vast experience in M&A transactions and your, you know, uh, uh, um, um, you know, understanding of cyber risks, how does cybersecurity really interplay within an M&A deal? Is it a priority? Is it last, is it last right before the deal gets closed? Where, where do you kind of get contemplated? How strongly is cybersecurity being contemplated in some of these deals? Right. So... So being a lawyer, I can give you a lawyer answer. And that answer is it depends. Um, and uh, but let's, let's dive into it a little more deeply. Um, you know, we focus primarily in the middle market, maybe the upper middle market. Um, and we, we handle a really wide range of industries. So that could be manufacturing and distribution, industrial technology, but it could also be consumer financial services, and healthcare. And I think the first thing uh, the team needs to look at is the nature of the target. What's the target's business? Sure. You know, certain industries present greater risks than others. So if we were buying a company in the healthcare industry or the financial services industry, it should be a huge focus and usually is at this point. Now, now four years ago, five years ago, maybe it wasn't as big a focus as it is today, but in those industries, it should be a huge focus. But even in other industries, it can be a focus because you have to look at whether or not uh, the target has data that is classified as PII, personally identifiable information, and the definition of that varies from statute to statute, from country to country, from state to state. It's getting broader and broader as time goes on. It's usually sensitive information about an individual, but it doesn't exclusively have to be that. Um, and, the, and the one area that people really don't think about as often, they'll say, oh, well, we're dealing with a target that's not in a sensitive industry, so we don't have to worry about it that much. You know, if they're if they're if you have employees, and and, and I don't think the number really matters; only the magnitude is correspondent to the numbers. But if you have employees, almost certainly you have PII of those employees. So all of a sudden, if you have a thousand employees and there's data breach risk, it's real. Uh, so I would say the answer is. It should be on everyone's checklist. Uh, how high up on that checklist? It should be in the top 10% of, of risks that we look at. 
just where on in that it depends more on on what the targets industry is and what information they have and I'm sure the next question is, it's going to change, I would imagine, depending on industry, but um, is, is downtime loss of revenue a concern for a possible acquisition, uh, taking over a target, uh, meaning if there was a, a data incident and the target wasn't able to operate for a month, the lost revenue, is that going to be contemplated in the deal? Well, in many different, yes, and in many different ways, you could have specific covenants and indemnities in the contract, which you should, that would cover that kind of thing. There's also typically something called a MAC provision, which talks about whether there's a material adverse change in the business, operations, financial results, et cetera. So depending on the magnitude, it could trigger the MAC, but even if it doesn't, uh, I would wanna have uh, specific provisions uh, relating to a data breach or maybe even um, a regulatory action by a, an agency that governs that that company uh, and its and its data reporting obligations or its cybersecurity obligations. Um, just you know, to to digress for a second, I don't want to get too far afield from your question, but there are so many domestic companies. Hopefully, by now they realize it, but but very often they don't realize that they could have exposure to the GDPR, which is this broad sweeping uh, European data regulation and, and the regulators in theory have jurisdiction over the domestic companies if, they, if the companies have uh, EU citizen data. And I certainly would wanna have an ability to stop the clock, so to speak, if I was in the middle of the deal and uh, the data authority in, in the EU started investigating or bringing an enforcement action against the target. That, that's not something as a buyer you'd want to just just go go ahead with and and not have some kind of adjustment or ability to terminate even. Sure, Steve. For the listeners on today's uh, on today's podcast, if they wanted to reach you and they had questions about possibly selling their business, wow. how would they best be able to reach you? Is it email? Is it phone? Is it LinkedIn? Uh, so, so email, phone are all good. I rarely go on LinkedIn. Maybe I'll change that as time goes on. I just haven't uh, really warmed up to it. Um, if you go to my firm website or just Google Steve Cooperschmidt, Ruskin, Moscow, Falkcheck, you'll get my uh, landing page and there's a V card and all my contact information is there. Excellent. Excellent. <clears throat> So, you know, sticking on the same topic, but changing gears a little bit, we spoke about how cybersecurity impacts different industries. My question is, does cybersecurity change different deal structures? So depending on the different type of deal, does that change uh, the certain uh, safeguards that we may be requiring? It's a great question. I'm gonna say a qualified no, and, and that's unique. And I'll, I'll, let me give a little more detail, you know, Often deal structure is chosen for tax reasons, but also it's chosen to mitigate risk to the buyer. So you may choose an asset deal because you don't want to incur any unknown liabilities that you can avoid by choosing an asset structure. Um, maybe you choose a merger because you want to not trigger a permit change of control. These are just examples of why 
people might choose one structure over another. What I think is unique about cyber risk, and I'll, I want to talk a little bit more about what that is, is regardless of the deal structure, if there's an incident, or if there's not an incident yet, but there's a problem, while you may have recourse against the seller, the problem is going to be so organic to the business acquired and potentially damaging to the acquirer that I think it's a unique and different level of problem. So let me, let me put a little meat around that skeleton. Take ransomware, for example. Often the threat actor in a ransomware situation has hacked into the affected person's system and is sitting there for a period of time. Maybe they're doing other things. Maybe they're spoofing off the target's website. Maybe they're you know, committing other crimes using the IP address. But ultimately, their intent is to deploy a ransomware attack and, and seek uh, ransom uh, in exchange for uh, not shutting down or deploying personally identifiable information of the target. If a buyer buys that company, and just to keep it as simple as possible, and plugs the target computer into its own computer system, sure. and has failed to do technical and policy diligence, and has failed to adequately ensure and seek indemnity and, and all of those other kinds of protections, it's a far bigger problem than a typical, oh, uh, we forgot to disclose this contract and you owe the vendor $35,000. You know, that happens, it's not fun, but this could, this could be uh, systemic to the, to the buyer. So uh, I, I think the protections that are offered by the different structures can be meaningful, but I think it's a different level of risk than many, many things. That, that's it was very interesting and I think you know listeners are going to very much appreciate that guidance um so so we've spoken about kind of the different deal structures and the different industries let's get into the different phases of a deal and perhaps when does cybersecurity start becoming a conversation is it in the beginning during the screening is it the end when you're doing the negotiations or is it you know it kind of depends well, I think every deal starts with a discussion of the business terms, you know, the, the, the value, what's being paid, how it's being paid. But it goes back to the first question that you asked me. If I'm buying a company that's engaged in, in some aspect of the healthcare industry, and I know that they have personally identifiable information, maybe they have financial information uh, of a lot of uh, clients, customers, patients, whatever the term may be for that industry. I think it's one of the first risks a good buyer would look at. And they'd be looking at that from a business point of view. They'd be looking at it from a technology point of view. There'd be a tech team going in and doing diligence. And then as lawyers, we would look at things like uh, policies, internal policies, Cyber hygiene is the is the buzzword you hear a lot today. Do they take it seriously? Has it been addressed in the boardroom? Um, is the target focused on it? Do I have a good feeling about you know that that they're pretty buttoned up? Again, if I'm buying a business that's uh, a B two B business in an old school industry and everything is done over the phone and they 
issue, you know, the only, the only exposure is potentially email. Um, I think, I think uh, again, we look at it, but at a much lower level or at a much, um, much later in the process, it's, it's, it's less of a concern. So I think it's fair to say, tying the, several of the questions you asked together, if it is a high priority item in this particular deal, you want to get on it quickly. And, and one last point about that, Mark, you do need to get on it quickly because it's very technically burdensome. It's, sure. it's not, you know, a lot of diligence is done by looking at a report. You know, if you're going to do a lean search, you get the lean report, you look, you see what they are, and then you'll go look at the underlying debt instruments. Okay. You know, you, you get through it. But you're talking about typically uh, very complex infrastructures, technical infrastructures, uh, just figuring out what the uh, digital assets are. They can even go to handheld devices and, and mobile devices. Um, so, so it's a time consuming process and should be addressed early on. Not necessarily the value, but just to really getting uh, your hands on what the risk is. Sure. So, so Steve, we've spoken about a lot within cyber risk and MMA. Uh, MA. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you before I let you go? You know, I love to tease, <clears throat> so I will. Yeah, you should have asked me about insurance. So let me let me let me talk about insurance. Sure. Um, you know, you taught me this, okay? But we deal with it every day. I think so many businesses, look, yesterday I got a call from someone who experienced a data breach, a little off topic, but not really. And uh, unfortunately they did not have, they believed they had cyber coverage, but they didn't have cyber coverage. And you and I have been through enough uh, actual matters where we know, look, cyber coverage can vary greatly and there are remnants of things that relate to cyber coverage. I'm trying to describe it in the best way. There are policies that are not policy, not cyber policies, maybe general liability policies, maybe business interruption riders, maybe other policies that can be looked at. But if I was buying a business, especially if it's one where there's significant risk, probably call you, but we would look at, I, I definitely would call you if I was going to call somebody, but I'd probably call you to look at it as a diligence team member. Uh, you know, is this adequate insurance? Should there be a problem on the target? And, and will that insurance inure to the buyer's benefit? And if not, is there insurance that the buyer can purchase that would help them if there's a data breach, you know, one last point on insurance. And I know you know this. My perspective is that at some level, insurance companies really run the whole industry, the whole cyber security industry. So it's really, they ought to be engaged in with, with management and the lawyers and everyone as you go into this, because you, you can get a lot of protection from engaging with the carrier right away. You know, Steve, I, I very much agree. I would say over the past year, maybe year and a half, the insurance industry has started to get a little bit of a black eye by saying we were the ones that were facilitating the uh, uh, the um, extrapolation of the ransomware. 
And I would actually take a stand saying really around last year, the insurance companies have gotten to, not gotten together, but they've agreed that there's certain controls that are bare minimums. Things like having MFA. If you don't have MFA in place, you might not be able to get insurance. So really starting to now make sure that businesses, if they want to apply for insurance, are meeting certain minimal controls that they have agreed upon. You know, Marsh has come out and they said that there's about 12 key controls businesses should be looking at. Different carriers might say 12, other ones might say 10, but roughly about 12 key controls. So really getting the insurance companies and the brokers together to make sure that the clients are able to meet these certain safeguards, I do believe will make uh, you know, our uh, uh, corporate America a little bit safer going forward. Yeah, and, and I know we need to finish up, but I just wanna add that in an M&A context, that protocol will give comfort that protocol will go, will give some comfort to buyers who are who are doing their diligence if if the target has gone through that process um, it's just another indication that there's good hygiene there yeah absolutely well steve thank you for the time today and coming on the show and chatting cyber with us thanks so much for having me i always enjoy working with you and uh i look forward to seeing you thanks very much feelings mutual my friends Thank you.